You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Okay, quick programming note before I get to the top of this week's show. I had to record this before the Senate voted on Brett Kavanaugh over the weekend. I'm going to assume, as looks highly likely right now, fuck you, Jeff Flake, that Kavanaugh got confirmed. All right, here we go, opening this week's show. So this confidential note appeared at the end of last week's Savage Love, which went up on Tuesday night. Confidential to American citizens everywhere. Furious about Brett Kavanaugh? Me too. That's why I donated to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, our only hope of protecting a woman's right to choose voting rights, LGBTQ rights, the environment, organized labor, our only hope for blocking Trump's anti-everyone-and-everything agenda is to take back the House and Senate this November. If Democrats control the House come January, which looks likely, they can impeach Kavanaugh. If they control the Senate come January, a longer shot but within reach, they can put Kavanaugh on trial. And that means a full and for real investigation into all the allegations against him, including the numerous ways in which he perjured himself during his confirmation hearings. All right, that was at the end of last week's Savage Love, Tuesday night. Wednesday morning, this news broke. Quote, as of this writing, 538 Senate forecast gives Democrats a 28% chance of retaking the upper chamber this November. This week, the billionaire and potential 2020 candidate pledged $20 million to the Senate Democrats super PAC. New York Magazine's Eric Levitz credits Bloomberg's disgust with the GOP's handling of the Ford-Kavanaugh hearings. But that hearing took place the previous week. It seems like decades ago now, and Bloomberg didn't get around to making this donation until after my column went live. So it seems obvious, doesn't it? Michael Bloomberg is a Savage Love reader, and if his $20 million donation helps the Democrats take the Senate, that was all me, baby. All me, I built that. Now, Savage Love truthers will argue that Bloomberg could have made that donation immediately after the hearings, and we didn't find out about it until after my column came out. I reject this hypothesis. The facts here are clear. Michael Bloomberg billionaire, former mayor of New York City, is a Savage Love reader. And when I say jump slash donate, Michael Bloomberg says how high slash how much. Be like Mike and do what I'm telling you to do. Get out your credit card and make a donation to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, dscc.org. Click on contribute. Because if we want to have an actual investigation into the allegations against Kavanaugh, we need to take back the House and the Senate. If we want to get to the bottom of Russia's attack on our democracy, we need to take back the House and the Senate. If we want to protect a woman's right to control her own reproductive system, if we don't want to see women and doctors going to jail, if we don't want to see women dying needlessly, we need to take back the House and the Senate. If we want to protect voting rights, protect immigrants, reform our criminal justice system, and on and on, we need to take back the House and the Senate. 28% odds, 538 says? Those are better odds than 538 gave Donald Trump for winning the White House. We can do this. But the election is 28 days away, and we can't do it if we just sit there. We got to do something. We cannot take the hyped blue wave for granted because, as The Week reports, 
Republicans have caught up with Democrats and voter enthusiasm amid the Kavanaugh saga. Here's a quote from the week's report. With the 2018 midterms less than four weeks away, a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows Republican voters have caught up with Democrats in viewing the election as very important. The same poll registered a 10-point enthusiasm gap in July, but now Democrats and Republicans are both nearly equally juiced to vote, says the week. Democrats now lead by a two-point margin, 82% to 80%. The pollsters cite the contentious Senate hearings over Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination and the sexual allegations against him. The result of hearings, at least in the short run, is the Republican base was awakened, says Lee Maringhoff, Marist's polling director. It's like a giant batshit signal went up. A terrible man who is alleged to have done terrible things and who actually did live on television disqualifying things, lying under oath during his confirmation hearing. Oh, my God, that terrible man is in trouble. And it's not Kavanaugh's lying or Kavanaugh's raw partisanship that awakened the GOP base. No, 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 no. It is the sexual assault. This is the same party that spent the last 10 years insisting it had to protect women from the non-existent threat posed by trans women using public restrooms. And here they are now all excited to vote for an actual threat to women's safety. Now, this wouldn't be the first time an accused sexual predator got Republicans excited about voting. They were psyched to vote for an accused, no wait, sorry, an admitted sexual predator in 2016, Donald J. Trump, and not just Republican men either. Remember those Trump can grab my pussy t-shirts the double X deplorables were wearing at Trump rallies in the fall of 2016? I do. But the accused sexual predator that excites Republicans to vote doesn't always win. Georgia Republicans were excited to vote for Roy Moore, accused child sexual predator, in 2017, and Moore lost that race. So we can beat them, and we can take the Senate, but we got to do the work. We got to register, we got to donate, we got to volunteer, and we got to vote. November 6th, that's election day. It's exactly one month away from today. Vote, donate, volunteer. Let's do this. So coming up on today's show, Lo from the Dream a Little podcast joins us to discuss ABDL, adult baby diaper lovers and littles. That's on the micro free edition of the Savage Lovecast. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, lots more questions, lots more answers. You can subscribe to the Magnum edition, which is twice as long and has no ads at savagelovecast.com. All of that and more coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. So I'm a heterosexual male in my early 20s. And I've been having a constant problem with relationships I've been having. So I'll meet a girl and then develop a somewhat deep connection because of all the things we share with each other in our first time meeting each other. And then after I actually get to know them, I'll realize I don't really like their personality traits and am not as interested in them as I thought I was. But at this point, they're invested in me, so I feel bad about ending the relationship. And I guess I'll just continue it for the sake of not wanting to, I guess, hurt their feelings. So I was wondering what I can do before going into these, I guess, encounters with women without being an asshole in a way or losing who I am as a person. You've noticed this pattern and part of this pattern is hurting the feelings of these women that you are briefly dating, uh, 
into allowing them to make these emotional, sometimes I assume sexual investments in you that aren't wise investments now that you know this about yourself. So going forward, if you want to avoid hurting people, tell the truth, be honest, use your words. When you meet someone and there's a spark and a mutual interest, tell them, say that you're only interested in casual dating right now. You're not looking for any long-term commitment. You're not looking for a serious romantic entanglement. You're also not looking for monogamy. And then if the woman that you've just said that to is looking for something more serious, she'll know not to invest in you. She'll know not to look to you for that kind of relationship that she would like to have. You will weed out the women who want something more serious from the women who might be up for what it sounds like you're up for right now in your early 20s, which is not an inappropriate thing to be up for in your early 20s, which is a series of casual relationships where you learn more about yourself, brief commitments even, serial monogamy, where you learn about yourself, you learn about them, you learn what you want, and eventually, perhaps later in your 20s or into your 30s, you'll know yourself and know what you want by dint of and because you've benefited from these early experimental, non-committed relationships brief, short-term successful relationships. You're having a lot of unsuccessful short-term relationships right now because you're allowing these women to assume something that isn't irrational. It's a reasonable assumption that if you, this guy, this sexy guy expresses interest in them in this way, that he is open to a commitment and a romantic relationship because you're allowing them to make this reasonable assumption they're getting hurt. And so your short-term relationships at this stage of your life are not successful. Don't allow them to make that reasonable assumption by being upfront and truthful about what you're looking for and the kind of relationship you're capable of having right now, which is short-term, not committed. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old straight female on the East Coast. I have a question about how to talk to my 13-year-old cousin. I have a feeling that she may be transgender. She is not acknowledging that she's going through puberty um, for at least over a year now, probably a little bit longer, probably closer to two years. And she's become obsessive about studying for school. Uh, where she is, there are tests to go into specialized high schools, and she's become obsessive about studying for that so she can go into a specialized high school. Um, she's the child of two first-generation Asians. So there is some pressure traditionally of, you know, to do well in school. But my aunt and uncle are at the point where they think that she's studying too much. She and I aren't super close because there is such a big age difference. She was born when I was a senior in high school. Um, but I just wanted to know if you had any suggestions on any books that I should be reading or how to say to her, I'm on your side no matter what. I don't want to feed into her and tell her she's transgender because um, she may not be. But I just want her to know that she has an ally and she has support no matter what within her family. And I'm not sure how to do that. Looking right at a kid that you think might be queer, some 12, 13, 14-year-old kid is a little bit like looking at the sun during an eclipse, except instead of damaging yourself, instead of hurting yourself, you're likely to hurt that kid. Looking at that 12-year-old kid, that 13-year-old kid and saying, you're gay, right? Or saying, I think you might be gay if you're gay or if you're trans or if you're bi or if you're a lesbian. Just know that I'm your ally. I support you and you can turn to me. That could traumatize that kid. There are gender nonconforming 12, 13, 14-year-old kids who are not queer, who may be being bullied for 
the way they're perceived to be queer. And you bursting into their bedroom at Thanksgiving to let them know that you're their ally in their queerness could just feel like more bullying. And even if they are queer, a lot of 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds aren't ready to come out yet and will deny it. If a loving relative, when I was a screaming musical theater queen at age 13, when my parents asked me what I wanted for my birthday and I said tickets to a chorus line, if a loving, supportive ally relative had come into my rumor pulled me aside to let me know that when I was ready to come out as gay, they were on my side. I would have had a heart attack. I would have denied I was gay. I would have doubled and tripled down on the lie that I wasn't gay. And it would have possibly set me back. What helps, what you can do for the 12, 13, 14-year-old queer kids in your life, for the 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old queer kids in your life is Say queer, positive things in their presence, but not directly to them. Have gay, lesbian, bi, and trans friends. Trans is an issue that comes up all the time in the news right now. You can have an adult conversation in front of all the kids in your family about being supportive of trans people and transgender identities and queer people and gay people and lesbian people and bi people. And you will let them know in that moment when they hear you say positive and supportive things, not directly to them, don't look at the sun during the eclipse, don't look at the queer kid during this conversation, but to other adults in the room. It's particularly important if you're in a family that's anti-queer and there are kids, some of whom are going to be queer when they grow up, if you want to be the ally, the person that they know that they can turn to when they are ready to come out, not to pull them aside, but to argue with the anti-gay, anti-lesbian, anti-bi, anti-trans, anti-pan, anti-everything bigoted straight people that have access to them, that they've overheard saying shitty bigoted things about queers. That's how you let that 13-year-old know that when they're ready to come out, when they need an adult in their corner, that you're the adult that they can turn to. Hi, Dan. Um, question for you. So I am recently divorced, but I found that whenever I talk to people and you know get to know them and I tell them that um, I'm divorced, especially for people who have been married or are married, their first question and first reaction is to ask me what happened. You know, it's usually they try to say, well, I hope you don't mind me asking, but you know, like, what happened? Why'd you get divorced? And I just like, I don't want to give my business away. So I basically just say, you know, it was a lot of different things and we should have never gotten married to begin with, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like they're looking for one specific reason. I just always get this vibe, especially from married um, women, mostly, you know, they want to know what happened and what went wrong. I, I feel like to like figure out what they can do to avoid the same thing happening to their marriage. So I'm just curious if this is a common thing. Am I alone? I've just been getting a this a lot lately and I just wasn't expecting it. This is definitely a thing. And what people are after when they ask you why you broke up, particularly why you got divorced, is some reassurance that whatever you two did wrong they're not currently doing wrong in their marriage. When tragedy strikes, and divorce isn't always a tragedy, divorce is sometimes a liberation. Often people part amicably and they go on to have rewarding relationships and they remain friends and the divorce was a stage in their relationship and not a calamity. But divorce is generally regarded as a bad thing and is often a bad thing. And people, when they hear about a tragedy, when they hear about somebody dying in a car accident, when they hear about somebody unfortunately, getting sexually assaulted, when they hear about somebody getting divorced, they want all the details. Not because they're particularly concerned with you or for you, but they're concerned about their own relationships and their own marriage and their own sexual safety. When somebody 
when somebody gets infected with HIV, they'll ask how it happened because they want to know what you did wrong so they don't feel at risk themselves. And it's often the case with divorce or contracting HIV or whatever else. People take their chances. They assume a certain degree of risk and shit happens. And, and this impulse to protect ourselves somehow, to, to reassure ourselves that our marriage is secure and safe because whatever else is happening in our marriage, whatever our conflicts and stresses are, we didn't do that thing, that thing that you did, that thing that led to the end of your marriage, whatever it was. And that's why people want to know what it was so that they can look to their own marriage and not find it in there and then feel safer and more secure. And it is a selfish and often thoughtless response when someone shares with you, when you learn that someone went through a divorce or whatever other tragedy, you have to stifle that impulse to start demanding reassuring details. The details that aren't reassuring for the person you're asking to share, but details you want so that you can then reassure yourself. So when people ask you something like that, if it's a good friend, if it's somebody that you want to confide in for your own reasons, someone you want to confide in because it would be helpful to you to unpack and process this with someone who is empathetic and understanding, open up to that person. When it's someone that you don't want to confide in, someone that you wouldn't personally benefit from examining what went wrong in your marriage with, you can tell that person to fuck the fuck off. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. Um, I'm a 22 year old woman and I'm calling with a question um, about someone who keeps contacting me. So a little backstory about a year ago, I was raped and Shortly thereafter, I was pursuing a lot of sexual connection with different people. I think I felt lost, and I felt like I wanted to reclaim my body by sleeping around. In one of those experiences, I had just met a guy, and we were hooking up, and he started to choke me and push me down into the pillow, very rough. Um, and this is about five minutes into us having sex for the first time didn't ask for any sort of consent and immediately I was having flashbacks to my rape and I started to shake and cry and have um, a total anxiety attack. So this guy ended up, you know, he, he helped me calm down, but then he said some things that were just a little troubling. He kept saying, you know, oh, don't worry, you don't have to feel embarrassed for crying in front of me and all this kind of stuff. And in my head, I was thinking, I don't feel embarrassed. I wanted to tell him to fuck off because I felt like it was totally his fault for doing that without even asking for my consent. Um, but I, I was just really shaken and wanted him to get the fuck out of my apartment. So since then, I've never talked to that guy again. Um, we've exchanged a few text messages, but I never told him that what he did, uh, like the impact that it had on me and and why what he did was wrong. So flash forward about a year, he still contacts me regularly, probably, you know, every three or four months, and he texts me and tries to, like, booty call me. And I always just either make small talk with him and just don't respond. But now I'm starting to feel a little stronger and more assured of myself, and I kind of just feel like saying that, explaining to him why what he did was so wrong and why I'll never be hooking up with him again. So my question for you is, do you think that in this 
day and age, it's my responsibility to explain to this guy why what he did was so wrong. I don't really want to because I feel uncomfortable doing that, but I also think if it could spare someone else from experiencing this, then maybe that's the right thing to do. What do you think? Before I get to your question, there's two things I want to say. First, I'm so sorry that you were violated. I'm so sorry that you were raped, sexually assaulted. And I hope whoever did that to you is rotting in a prison somewhere next to Bill Cosby. The second thing I want to say before I answer your question is I know people who took the approach that you took after your sexual assault to reclaim their bodies, who did a little bit of sleeping around after the sexual assault to reclaim their bodies. And there's no data. This is just anecdote. I just have had conversations with women and some men I know who post-sexual assault reclaim their body by, as you did, doing a little bit of sleeping around. And it worked for them. And it sounds like with this one experience being the exception, it worked for you and it helped. I'm reluctant to sign off on this as some sort of therapeutic approach or therapeutic model because of what happened with this one guy. The more random people you sleep with, the more sleeping around you do, the greater the odds that you're going to wind up in bed with someone that is an asshole, someone that you don't know anything about, someone you can't trust, someone who might bust a move in the moment that is rough or violent and potentially triggering and traumatizing, as was the case with this guy. That said, there are people who've been raped, traumatized, triggered by people they thought they could trust. So establishing trust, establishing rapport, even having sex with somebody you've been having sex with for a dozen years, people have been raped by their spouses. Marital rape is a thing that is now, thank God, illegal in most places. So in a way, there's no guarantees. But on average, I think our chances of landing in bed with someone who doesn't care about us, somebody we can't trust, are higher when we are landing in bed with randos, which is why we need to be careful and cautious, which is not to say never sleep with a rando. I slept with a rando and I married to that rando 24 years later. So yeah, I guess I'm all over the place on this issue. I just felt I needed to weigh in on this approach, which I've known some people to take and I've known other people to take the opposite approach, take some time off, take time away from sex, talk to a therapist. Hopefully you were while you were also reclaiming your body by sleeping around, talking to a therapist at that same time. They're not mutually exclusive pursuits, but just a word of caution to anyone out there contemplating this approach post-trauma to reclaim your body. In answer to your question, I do think that you should confront this guy. Responsibility is a, a heavy word, and I think it applies here. I do think that you have a responsibility to others to confront this guy. In the moment when you got upset, he told you not to feel bad for crying in front of him. He probably thought he was being thoughtful and considerate, but you didn't feel bad for crying in front of him. You felt bad because he scared the shit out of you, because he triggered you, because he choked you without your consent. And he needs to know when he sleeps with random women that the odds that he's in bed with someone who's been violated, sexually assaulted, or raped are really high. And rough sex moves are not moves he can bust the fuck out without prior negotiation, without obtaining enthusiastic consent without determining in conversation with this potential sex partner that this isn't just something that she might be willing to do for him, but this is something that she enjoys and wants to do with him. He didn't do any of those things and triggered you, upset you, traumatized you, re-traumatized you. 
And he needs to know that. And you should tell him. And you should do it in a text and then block him already. Tell him how he fucked up. Tell him what he did wrong. Tell him why you aren't responding to his requests for booty calls. And tell him that if he doesn't want to get blocked in the future by other women he'd like to sleep with more than once, if there are rough sex moves that he wants to bust out that he enjoys, he needs to make damn sure in advance that those are moves that she would enjoy as well. You will feel better, I promise you, after you send that text. Not just because it will protect other women that this guy might convince to go to bed with him in the future, although there is that and that is hugely significant, but because you need to say this for yourself. You need to tell him this. That's why you called me. You called me so that I would give you that nudge, that nudge that you needed to tell him, to confront him. And he needs confronting and you're just the person to do it. Hey, Dan, I'm calling from the Midwest. I'm in my late twenties. Um, I was out tonight with a friend and then I started off with her um, talking about this experience she had with a guy on Friday night. Um, they had a one night stand and then Saturday she invited him over and was, she said, explicit about wanting to just hook up and have sex. When he was over at her house on Saturday, she said that they were listening to some music and things were getting touchy and feely. Then he got a text message and then read the text and abruptly left. And so she's asking me and my boyfriend our opinions about what happened. And we were both like, you know, don't overthink it. Who, You know, it wasn't a bad experience as far as the one I stand went. You know, maybe he just decided he didn't want to be a part of this. Maybe he really did get an emergency text. You know, who knows? Um, but then after my boyfriend left and her and I continued drinking into the night, she, um, well, I asked her how old this guy was, if he was maybe more immature than her. Um, and maybe he just couldn't deal with an older woman. I don't know. Um, but she confessed to me that he is a minor. He's 17. And they met because she has volunteers come in um, and he was a volunteer at a work event that she was hosting. And she says in the, in the state that we live in that it, the statute of limitations is 16, but I just don't know how to handle this. I don't know if it's something that I need to place a police report about. I don't know if it's something that I need to, I, well, I definitely don't want to go to my boss about this. I, I don't know. Um, but what I told her was to write everything down. She said that she didn't know how old he was until after the fact. I told her I don't want to know anything else about it, but I do know. So I don't know what I'm supposed to do from here. Here's what you should do about this. Nothing. If the age of consent where you live is 16 and that's easily verified, just Google age of consent, not statute of limitations, age of consent. If the age of consent where you live is 16, then someone who was of legal age to consent had sex with somebody else of legal age to consent. There was a large age gap here and that has left you feeling a little bit icked out and left you questioning your friend's judgment. And you're taking that squicked out icky feeling and asking if you should run to the cops with it and report the crime that didn't happen. The sex that was legal but icky because of the age gap? 
There's nothing here for you to do if indeed the age of consent where you live is 16 years old, which is easily confirmed. I'm not generally of the opinion that people in there, however old your friend is, you don't give her age. People who are decades older than 16-year-olds and teenagers should be fucking them or 17-year-olds should be fucking them. I can understand questioning whether you want to be friends with this woman going forward. Maybe fucking teenagers disqualifies someone from being your friend. And your friend presented herself to you as the victim here that she got ghosted by this guy, that he disappeared on her and she was hurt. That she wasn't the victim doesn't mean that he was the victim. There could have been a power differential that was exploited here, her age, her experience. But these were two, at least when it comes to sex, consenting adults. And where adulthood kicks in is blurry in our culture. You can drive at 16, you can vote at 18, you can drink at 21. In some states, the age of consent is 16, and some it's 14, and some it's 17, and some it's 18. But if in the state where you live, it is 16, and this boy, this teenage boy was 17, there's no crime here for you to report to the police. You can, if you care to, confront your friend about her judgment and encourage your friend to seek out more age-appropriate sex partners in the future. And if she can't do that, at the very least, ask her not to confide in you about her sex life and its attendant drama because you don't want to hear it. Yeah, 47-year-old man, gay man here in SoCal. Mom's coming to visit me. She's only 18 years older than me. Um, my question is, I've been HIV positive for the last 23 years, and she doesn't know. I haven't told her. I'm terrified to tell her. I'm a 47-year-old man. I pay all my own bills. Um We've been pretty much cordially estranged for the whole time. We're very nice to each other, but I would never tell her any of my deepest, darkest anything. I haven't told her that I'm positive, and um, it's been 23 years, and I'm a 47-year-old gay man, under, having a hard time understanding why it's so hard for me to tell her. Literally nothing would affect my life, what she said. There's no way she can take money from me or power from me or affection from me. There's nothing she can stop giving me for me telling her. And I'm still terrified to tell her. Um, has your mother come for this visit yet? Oh, yeah. She's here. Oh, my gosh. Okay. We're I'm going to get together. <laughs> is this a bad time? Can you not talk? No, she's over looking at things. Okay, so you and mom are at Target. Have you told her that you're paused yet? No. Do you feel compelled to? Yeah, not really. Then what's the problem? Well, I I don't know. I just, you know, I start uh, thinking about facing your fears and you have to, you know, go where it's scary and all that kind of stuff. But then when it comes down to it, I'm like, eh, I don't know. This is a, a, her out about it. <laughs> right, it's your private medical information. She's not entitled. Your mother, your adult mother, isn't entitled to her adult child's everything. Right, all the information about his health. She's not entitled to that information. It's possible that your mother might react or overreact in a way that's uninformed, based on what it meant to be HIV positive twenty three years ago, as opposed to what it means to be HIV positive now. Well, that's the thing. I'm not. I mean, she's. Like, there's nothing she can take away from me. There's no, like, I wouldn't be 
worried about any of that. And she's even a nurse. Like she's like, it's mostly psychological nurse, but she deals with all kinds of things Mm -hmm. like this. So she's, you know, she's informed. You say you're estranged though, polite, polite, but estranged. And a little bit. Yeah. Is that have any roots in your coming out when you came out to her? Did she react badly? Was she no, no. abusive no. and neglectful as a parent? You know, single mom. I wouldn't... Neglectful seems harsh, but, you know, like a key kid. Yeah, she was, stre- <laughs> she was stretched thin, but there was no malice or, or, or willful neglect. No, no, no. Can I flip this on you in an interesting way? Sure. I'm wondering if you're not wanting to tell your mother or contemplating telling your mother and having these sort of panic attacks about the thought of telling your mother because you want to be closer. I know it's probably because I don't want to like start crying or feel anything and then have to like show any emotion in front of her. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I think as gay kids, we, we hide from our parents. Right. And, and the closer we are, the more intimate that relationship. And, you know, I think a single parent, single mom, son relationship is pretty intimate and pretty close the more work we have to do to hide and that can create a lifelong pattern where we, for fear of being known by our parents for who we really are, eventually we're known to them, but we're just in this habit of concealing. We're in this habit of fearing if they knew this or they knew everything that they wouldn't love us. I remember feeling that very distinctly when my, you know, I was 13, 14, 15 years old and my parents would say, I love you. And I would think, no, you don't. Right. And if you knew me, you know, if you found this out about me, you might not love me. And that's dangerous for a 13 year old. You know, I didn't want to get thrown out of the house. And, and so I just, thing, like, I, I got into this habit of, of not sharing with my parents for fear. And it took me into my adulthood, you know, into my twenties and thirties to stop that, to, to, to break that pattern of just not telling them for fear of blank. Cause I had nothing to fear. Just as you say, you have nothing to fear anymore. Right. I, I know intellectually I literally don't like mm-hmm. there's nothing she can do to me. <laughs> well, she could say something hurtful or, or, or uninformed. Uh, yeah, but I don't honestly believe that she would. I'm pretty sure she'd be really supportive. Mm-hmm. Is it her support you don't want? I don't know. It's just, it's probably me just like having to say it out loud and face it. And like, it's, Mm-hmm. just been so long that it's like built up and and then you're gonna have to have a conversation about why you waited so long to tell her uh-huh yeah all that and i think that is a conversation you might want to have well it took me this long to tell you this because we've always had this polite but distant relationship and it didn't i didn't feel like we were intimate in the way that i am with the friends that i've confided in particularly back before there were effective drugs and treatments for hiv and it was scarier. I confided in friends. I, I you know, I turned, I, I found support where I thought I could get it. And for some reason, I didn't feel like I could get that or find that from you. Or I didn't want to burden you. Whatever it is, you should have, I think you should tell her. Yeah. I think you called me because you wanted me to call you back and tell you to tell her. <laughs> tell me to tell me. <laughs> or confirm that I know that intellectually. Yeah. I just... If your mother was a raving bigot, if your mother was one of those parents who when they're gay kids came out to them said you're going to get hiv and die and deserve it which i've gotten calls and letters from gay men whose parents said exactly that then the fear is going to them and telling them well you were right i got hiv hope you're happy that can get very fraught you know i I know so many people particularly gay men my own age 
who, when they came out, their parents were all about the HIV and the fear of it. And that being a reason not to be gay. And they're bundling up their homophobia with their fear of HIV and using it as a stick to beat their gay sons. Right. And then to be the gay kid who, even if you did everything right and a lot of, they want to make it about doing right and wrong to be that gay kid who acquired HIV. Right. And then have to go to the parent who said those hateful things to you. That can be awful. And you don't want to give them that. And you don't want to revive that line of attack. But that's not the case here. And that's not even the case here. Yeah. (laughs) Which makes me think that you're turning this over in your head because, and you know, I'm a mother son, particularly mother gay son relationship fan. I was really close to my mom after that period of estrangement when I had to like pull away because I didn't want her to Uh figure it out. And I'm glad I got closer to my mom. You're how old again? 47? 47. And your mom's pushing 60? No, she's just 18 years older than me. So yeah, like 65. Okay. Well then she is, you are reaching that point where there's not that much time left to have this relationship with your mother. For sure. For sure. And I think you should tell her. And then if it go if it if it's a big nothing burger if she reacts blithely blandly if she's not supportive or whatever then you just revert to the polite estrangement but it could be a breakthrough that allows you and your mother to come closer while there's still time. Yes, you're I think, right. I think the HIV is a doppelganger. You know what a doppelganger is? A MacGuffin in a Hitchcock yeah, film. Yeah. It's like the, the yeah, microfilm exactly. everyone's chasing after, but it doesn't really matter what's on the microfilm. I really feel right, like. Right. The fact that you're paused, particularly now, is a, not a nothing burger. It's a serious condition and a lifelong chronic illness. And I hope you're compliant and on your meds and healthy. And you can expect yeah. now with HIV, if your meds compliant, the meds work for you to live a normal lifespan. So I don't want to describe HIV as a nothing burger, but it's really, I think, beside the point in this question, in this conversation. But the issue here yeah. is you're not content being politely estranged from your mother and want to be closer. And this, this one thing you haven't shared with her is the crucible in which you can form a new relationship. Awesome. Well, yeah, I think I just, you're just putting into words everything that kind of has been swirling around my head. Well, kind of amorphously. I'm in the business (laughs) of telling people what to do, but I'm not telling you what to do. Right. Right. But you, but you're, crystallizing things <laughs> but i kind of am but i'm not too. i just want to i, <laughs> yeah, I want to put yeah, an yeah, asterisk yeah. here and say you know sharing with someone that you're hiv positive is a really personal decision and you have a right to make that decision for yourself and confide in the people you wish to confide in and not confide in anybody you don't want to confide in but that it being said i think you want to have a conversation with your mother that bridges whatever you know, chasms exist or, you know, bridges the divide or the distance in your relationship. And this is really the MacGuffin. This is the reason to, 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 to have that conversation and bridge that divide. But your being paused is not the issue. The estrangement is. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Good luck. Whatever you decide to do, whatever you decide to do, we support you. Uh, and if you feel like it, if there's news and you want to share it, I'm sure people would love to get a call back and, and find out how it played out. All right, Dan. Thank you so much for calling me. Sure thing. Love to you and your mom. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Uh, my name is Gwen. I am a 32-year-old married cis 
female. We, my husband and I just opened the door to polyamory and I am, have been uh, dating a, a little bit using some of the, the apps to meet new people. Um, he's not at the time. I met someone on OkCupid and went on a date the other day with him and decided that I was not interested in dating him again any any further and sent him a message just saying I'm I'm all set here you know I'm I don't want to continue to see you and he sent me back sort of a of course you don't everyone always hates me kind of message which was weird and uncomfortable so I I blocked him he then created a few days after a he created a fake OkCupid account and referenced my favorite book in the fake profile so that I would know it was him because we had talked about my favorite book and sent me a long message asking what he had done wrong and how he thought we had a good connection and and all this stuff. And so I blocked that and I reported it to OkCupid and said this is harassing and hoped that he would take the hint. He created another fake profile and messaged me again asking what he did wrong. And so I messaged him back and said, I don't need to give you a reason why I don't want to see you anymore. I, it's just the way I feel. And he said, hear me out, hear me out. And I said, fine, because I'm hoping that if he get he gets it out, he'll leave me alone because maybe he'll feel some closure after one date. He needs closure. I don't know. Um, so he he told me all his defenses on why he thinks I should like him. And I said, nope, I'm all set. I appreciate that, but I'm not interested. And I made sure he read it. I got the red receipt, made sure he read it, and then I blocked him again. I've not heard from him again, but now I'm very, very scared of continuing this, continuing um, to use the apps and continuing to date. And I guess I don't know what I'm asking. I guess I'm asking, what should I do? Should I continue to date? Should I just say, fuck it, I have a husband and move on? I, uh, I don't know what to do. You're 32 years old, you're married, newly open and dating. Presumably you were dating before your marriage and presumably your husband wasn't the first man that you ever dated. And this guy, this asshole from OkCupid, is the first shitty, awful, entitled, intimidating, won't take no for an answer, demanding closure motherfucker that you've had to deal with. And now you're giving up on men or contemplating giving up on men. And I'm sitting here listening to your call thinking, wow. What did you do right all those years that this is the first time this has ever happened to you? I date men and I know how awful men can be, myself included. And I dated a toxic, shitty, stocky motherfucker when I was 16, 17 years old. One of the first guys I encountered was a jerk and a weirdo and who kind of stalked me and threatened me and threatened my friends. So that doesn't excuse this guy's behavior. That doesn't minimize your feelings of fear or anxiety having interacted with this guy. Just want to put it in perspective that you don't want to bail on X, whatever X might be, the first time you encounter an asshole who happens to be X if X is something that you appreciate. You did everything right. You blocked the motherfucker. When he contacted you deceptively, when he misused the platform OkCupid to contact you, you, you let OkCupid know their platform was being 
abused. Hopefully they took action. And if they didn't take action, please call back and let us know about that. And we'll get keep it on the phone and ask them why they didn't take action. And then you went that extra mile. You gave him something that he didn't deserve, which was a little bit of closure. Asterisk closure isn't something anybody owes you. Closure is something you do for your fucking self. But you told him one more time why it wasn't going to happen. And you blocked him one more time. And you haven't heard from him since. So maybe he got the message. I'm, I'm not minimizing your fear or your nervousness or your anxiety having interacted with somebody who wouldn't listen to you, wouldn't take your legitimate no for the answer that it is and fuck the fuck off. But let's put it in perspective. He hasn't come after you after you gave him the closure that he seems to think he's entitled to, which if he's a listener, fingers crossed, dude, you're not entitled to that. You can't demand that. You can't demand someone's attention by saying, oh, I'm sad and I need closure and you owe that to me. No one owes you fucking anything. But he seems to have gone the fuck away once you gave him one last go the fuck away, this time labeled closure. So I'd encourage you not to bail on men if men happen to be a thing or things that you enjoy. Just take some time off, men. Focus on your husband if you need the comfort and security. And when you have that itch again to seek some outside erotic attention or affirmation, go on another date or maybe two. And hopefully the next guy or guys that you contact via an app or through some other means will be like all the other guys you've ever encountered in your life. Will be like your husband. Will be like the guys you dated before your husband. All the guys who didn't pull this kind of shit on you, which is why you were so shocked and unnerved when this guy pulled this shit on you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old woman in St. Louis, Missouri. And I just had kind of a question for you. I feel like I want to explore being a little. Um, as of right now, it feels like I have little moments throughout my day-to-day life. And like I will quickly go from being professional in my day job to talking to my coworkers as if I'm a small child. I'm starting to feel that it's kind of becoming a problem and more of an obsession. Um, I've been doing a little more research into little as a lifestyle, and I'm wondering if maybe if I set some time aside to like really explore that side of myself that I might be able to calm down while I'm at work. Um, I don't understand really what's going on. I know I've been super stressed at work, and I don't know if I'm just kind of missing the carefreeness of being a child again. But, like, I I want to be, I want to be little. And I don't know really anybody else in that lifestyle. Additionally, I don't know if my partner, um, my boyfriend is interested in being a daddy to me in that kind of way. I know that he does like for me to call him daddy, and that is a part of our dynamic, but we haven't taken it to that point of actually being little and big. But I don't know. Um, Do you happen to have any resources on this, or who can I talk to about it? Exploring that side in a safe way that I'm not just going to immediately like cry and give up. 
Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Lo is an ABDL, that's Adult Baby Diaper Lover podcaster. Her podcast is Dream a Little Podcast. Lo helps littles feel confident about their kinks so they can share it with their significant others. Hey, Lo. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, just for people who've never heard of ABDL or littles, can you unpack those terms? What are we talking about here? Sure. Adult baby or diaper lover, it's basically just a form of role play where there's usually a power exchange between a caregiver and a little. The caregiver could be a mommy, daddy, and the littles usually play any kind of age. There doesn't even have to be a specific age in general, but there is some kind of age regression there. Now, diapers have come up a lot in my column over the years. You know, adult baby diaper lovers are not uh, a new thing. And I think most of my regular listeners, devoted listeners, will probably have heard me talk about this before because people have called in. And usually it's the person who's partnered with somebody who's into diapers who's having an issue with that or somebody's into diapers and having a hard time coming out about it or embracing it or they feel conflicted about it or they feel shamed for it. And my understanding typically over the years has been that this is about role-playing infancy, like the time of life when you're in a diaper. I have encountered in the last few years people who identify as littles and what they have meant or the people that I've interacted with meant by little was more toddler role-play than infant role-play. Is that not accurate? It really just depends on who you're talking to. Some people really don't really like being forced. Like maybe they're playing like a teenager role and they like being forced into the little role. But, but then there are people who do identify mostly as babies. They want to be helpless. They want to be cared for in, in a very sweet and nurturing way. So it's all over the spectrum. There's, it's really hard to pinpoint like exactly what it is because it's so unique as the people who have these kinks. And, and at bottom, as with almost all kinks, there is that element of power exchange. There's that element of helplessness yes. and somebody else being in control and rather than, you know, you're a helpless slave and this is your mistress and you're following orders, you're a helpless infant or an entirely dependent toddler. Yes, exactly. And it really is a really very gentle form of BDSM, but it is really, really difficult to tell your partner that you want them to treat you like a baby or, you know, put you in diapers without your partner assuming that this has something to do with pedophilia. The mind just kind of jumps there. And it's really the biggest obstacle that most ABDLs face when they're trying to open up about something that they've kept secret their entire life, really. Yeah, that is where most people who aren't into this kink, their minds go instantly. Like, what's sexy about a baby? What's sexy about a three-year-old? Exactly. And actual babies, actual three-year-olds, nothing is sexy about them. I'm here from Parentland to, to, no. to tell everybody about that. Nothing is sexy about diapers and puke. So what is sexy about it? Besides the helplessness of the power exchange, or I think you said that really well. It's kind of loving, gentle, kinder, gentler BDSM. But, you know, it, you know, what's sexy about blank? You know, insert anyone's kinks there. What's sexy about feet? What's sexy about latex swim caps? What's sexy about whatever, a lot of people can't tap into what's sexy about a kink that doesn't turn them on. But with this kink, I think because of that right. reaction, you know, the concern people have legitimate concern for the safety of children. People are like demanding answers from people who are into this that they wouldn't demand from somebody who was into to feet. Exactly. So what's well, the answer? First of all, I do want to say, <laughs> of course, children are never involved or thought of at all. But for me, the, the sexy side, I, I find it hard to say. It's sexy is kind of, you know, it depends on who you're talking to. But for me, it's really the dichotomy of seeing someone who is maybe six foot tall, muscular guy and 
I get to, like, since I'm a switch so I can play the mommy role, for me, I really get off on forcing them to wear diapers and wear them around me because it's very naughty, like very socially unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's more the element of control and the feeling of being needed for someone to rely on you and need you for certain things to, to, um, just be wanted in that way. Like for me, that is the biggest turn on. It's something that you're not supposed to be doing, but you are. And you know, for some people, that's a very strong feeling and a very sexual feeling as well. Well, just as we said, but I do need to say not not all, not all of ABDLs are sexual. I just need to say that as well, because for some people, it's completely non-sexual. That's familiar to me from the pup play scene. That there's a lot of people in, you know, and it's mostly gay guys, younger gay guys who are into the puppy play thing. And some will tell you it's sexual. Some will tell you it makes their dicks hard, and they want puppy play incorporated into sex. And some will say it's just a headspace thing where they want to relax and they want to let go of adult responsibilities and concerns and just kind of wallow or roll around in this kind of state where there isn't the the frontal lobes torturing you all the time with the minutia of your daily life or your concerns about the destruction of our democracy. And you're saying it's similar for some people into ABDL. Yes. You know, I interact with a lot of people in the community and ironically, a lot of these people are men, first of all, in high-powered positions at work. They live really stressful lives. They've got a lot of responsibility on their plate. And when they come home, sometimes people need to come home. They need to smoke a bowl. They need to have a glass of wine or whatever they need to do. Is That's their ritual. And for an ABDL, it could be as simple as putting on a diaper or just sitting at home with a, a stuffed animal or a pacifier or something like that. It's just a really, like the headspace I would define as really just a way that you can relax and let go. It's almost like a form of meditation because you're back in this position where you don't have responsibilities and you're able to just really let someone take over for a little bit. And it's very hard for people to do that without the headspace sometimes. So it's kind of a gateway to get to that, that state of mind, if that makes sense. It does. Let's talk about the caller's concerns in particular. She's got a boyfriend. He doesn't know about her interest. There are little events. She's looked them up in the community where she lives. She doesn't have the courage right now to, to show up for one or attend one. But it does seem like her desire to be a little maybe complicating her life. If she, in professional settings, is breaking out into a child's voice and regressing, this isn't transgressing you know, against social norms in the privacy of your own home with an understanding lover. This is transgressing in a workplace where that could really fuck you up professionally. Yes. So that quick transition that she's talking about is not what I would consider normal or healthy because that behavior could potentially make her lose her job. And it could be that maybe she's having those little slips because she doesn't feel like she can express those desires in an open way with her partner, which is very frustrating but understandable. And I do need to make that distinction. Like most of the people who listen to my podcast are so far into the diaper club that they can't even find the door. So this is not a normal occurrence. It's not like something that you, you're you usually able to just turn it off or turn it on. So, I mean, I would just say the most important thing that you need to do in order to tell your partner is you need to get comfortable with the idea that your partner might not be interested in this. And you have to be confident enough in yourself to be prepared to face rejection because that's just part of the game. Hopefully, a lot of people, when, when they open up to their partners, 
just if I can interject really quickly, be prepared to face rejection. But sometimes rejection comes bundled with an accommodation. Sometimes rejection isn't, I can't be with you anymore, pack your things and go. Sometimes rejection when it comes to kink is, I can't do this. This isn't for me. Please find an outlet for this. Please find someone or some ones, find yeah. a community where you can express this. And I will, and we can allow for that, and our relationship can accommodate that. So I think that's always important to remind kinksters when they're going to come out about their kink that sometimes rejection can, you know, be across the board and get out. But re- rejection can also be constructive. How do we find a way that we can have each other, and you can have this? So usually, when partners open up, the majority of their partners are going to come back and say, "Look, I know this is something that you're interested in. It's not for me, but I understand where you're coming from." You know, and that's okay because you can work with that. People can change their perspective over time. In fact, that's what my how my boyfriend first reacted when I told him about my kink. He wasn't into it. He didn't think he ever could be, but eventually he warmed up to the idea. But sometimes, like you mentioned before, you can kind of strike a negotiation with your partner where they give you permission to kind of go off and explore whether that's hiring a professional or if you're playing with other people online or if you're playing with other people in person even. And that's kind of the negotiation that my boyfriend and I have at the time because he is not into wearing diapers or doing any of that, but he's okay with me doing that with other guys so I can have an outlet for that. So that's always a possibility as well. You run a class called Confidently Kinky that might benefit this caller. Can you tell us about it? Yes. So the course I'm creating is completely online and it walks you through the process of opening up about ABDL to your partner from beginning to end. And not only from my own personal experience, but all the interviews that I've done over the years with hundreds of other ABDLs, I figured out there are certain things that people do in order to have success. So first off, you have to feel confident about your kink. If you're not able to do this, it doesn't matter if you follow all the other steps, you're going to fail. So you've got to feel comfortable with what you want. You've got to figure out exactly what you want and get really in touch with yourself. The second step, you've got to do a little kink investigation, what I call it. So you got to investigate and discreetly test your partner's interest in not only other kinks, but also their acceptance of human sexuality in general. You'd like to find someone who's what I call a sexual chameleon, someone who understands human sexuality and understands that it's not always just black and white. And then the third step is communication. You really need to figure out how to tell them why you like this and focus on the feelings you get from the little space rather than the projects themselves. And the final step is the implementation. It's all about implementing age plan to your relationship, avoiding common mistakes that most people make, and starting things off on the right foot so you don't scare your partner off. And people can learn more about Confidently Kinky, your class, at thelittlelounge.com slash course. There's just one thing that I would add to that that I always brace people when they're about to lay their kink cards on the table. Because of sex negativity, because of kink shame – a lot of people who might be open to your kink, who need to think about it, will have an instantaneous negative reaction. You'll say, I'm into X, and they'll go, oh, my God, no, ooh, ick. And it's actually not them speaking. Yeah. It's the culture shoving its hand up their ass and using them as a puppet to say, you know, to tag that sex-negative kink-shamey line. And then it sinks in, and then they begin to think <laughs> about what your kink really means and what uh, doing it with you or allowing you to do it with others might really mean, and they come around. But as a kinkster, if you freak out, if you curl up into the fetal position and die when your partner, you know, wrinkles their nose or gives you a look or the first answer is no, uh, you're not going to get anywhere. And so you have to 
whether that first response, brace for that first response being negative. That doesn't mean their response is always going to be negative. That doesn't mean the response 15 minutes later is going to be negative. But if you get up and leave the room, you're not going to be there in 15 minutes when they've had a minute to think yeah. about it and maybe come around and begin to see it from your perspective. Yes, you hit that on the head. I feel like it's really important to be able to have a sense of humor and to be able to laugh it off and not make it such a huge deal. Recognizing, of course, that I really do think that this one is a high bar for a lot of people to clear because of the kid squick. Is that fair of me to say? 100%. It really doesn't help that most of the media coverage is on Jerry Springer. Um, my training goes like that. It really doesn't shed this kink in a positive light. Lo, her podcast is Dream a Little Podcast. Follow her on Twitter at Daddy I Want This. Lo, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I really appreciate it. And I've listened to a couple episodes of your show and I enjoyed it. And I thought it was really smart and insightful. Thanks for having me, Dan. Hey, Dan. So I'm a recent college grad living in Philadelphia. And I've been seeing a girl now for about six, seven months. Uh, we knew each other all through college and just started dating right at the end. Always kind of had a flirtatious relationship together before we started dating. When it comes to our personalities and everything, we click perfectly. Spend all of our time together. We get along so great. The thing is, when it comes sexually, when we're actually having sex, it's great. It's on. But the thing is, I'm a very forward sexual person. But with her, she went through Catholic school growing up. And I feel at times I just am almost flirting with a brick wall that I will be trying to make advances in different ways on the given day. And I feel like a lot of the time she may, you know, tease and flirt a bit, but then just shut it off and it's gone. So I'm kind of starting to hit a weird point where I feel like my sexuality is almost kind of sinking in or repressing a bit because I don't want to, you know, cross any boundaries with her. I want her to feel comfortable. But at the same time, she also has never even had an orgasm. She's very, you know, protective of that. And she feels uncomfortable about letting loose in that kind of way. So she says she wants to try with me, but still she'll kind of stop during sex. So I'm just kind of at a loss. So any advice you have would be great. My advice would be to chill the fuck out and to separate out the issues here because you're lumping them all into her Catholic education. I am a product of Catholic schools myself. I don't have the issues that you attribute to your girlfriend. And that may not be the case. She hasn't had an orgasm with a partner yet. If she is also a recent college grad, if she's close to your age, that is not uncommon. There are a lot of women out there, women in their early 20s, women in their teens, who've been having partner sex for a while, who have not yet had an orgasm with their partner. You cite that as evidence that she is somehow broken or damaged, and that ain't necessarily so. This may just be the point where she's at on her sexual journey. And if you want to be along on that journey with her, you need to be there for her and on her side, not outside of her scrutinizing her, making a long list of all the ways in which she's deficient or damaged. So the question you need to ask your girlfriend when you have a conversation about incorporating orgasms, her orgasms into the sex that you two are having where your orgasms are present is whether she masturbates. And when she masturbates, is she able to bring herself to orgasm? You don't mention that, which leads me to believe you haven't asked. Ask. If she's able to have orgasms when she's alone, when she masturbates, then go back and listen to some past episodes of the show. I've talked about this at great length, how to take someone who has orgasms alone and make them feel comfortable having orgasms with 
someone else in the room, someone else present, someone else touching them. Also, you say that when you flirt, she's receptive, but then there comes a point where she shuts it down and you attribute that to her repression. That may just be a function of her libido. You may have a naturally higher set libido point than she does, and you may be interested in up for sex more often than she is, particularly if the only kind of sex you're attempting to initiate or the only kind of sex you're interested in is vaginal intercourse. As I have said to 8 million straight boys on 8 million college campuses, if every time you said yes to sex caller, you got fucked in the ass, you might say yes to sex less often than you would otherwise. So when you attempt to initiate sex with her, are you clear that sex includes mutual masturbation, that sex includes oral, not just her going down on you, but you going down on her, that sex includes frottage, fantasy, rolling around, dirty talk, even cyber sex or sexting, that basically the broader your definition of sex. And if your definition includes a lot of pleasurable, mutually pleasurable sexual activities that require her to be penetrated at that particular moment, the likelier she'll say yes more often. So have a conversation about that too. There's also the issue of her upbringing. There are a lot of sexually active, sexually liberated, sex positive Catholics out there. I'm one of them. I've fucked lots of them. I've also met some sexually repressed Catholics. You know what all sexually sex positive, liberated Catholics were once upon a time? Many of us sexually repressed Catholics, myself included. And what helps is a positive partner who affirms and acknowledges and takes baby steps and isn't bullying or demanding and doesn't treat us like we're broken winged birds or we're doing something wrong to them and they help bring us out. I credit my first serious boyfriend, Tommy Ladd, with being that person in my life. You could be that person in your girlfriend's life if you have conversations that just aren't counting up the numbers of times you've managed to get your dick into her and treating her not orgasming with a partner yet as evidence that she is broken when she's not broken. She's just where she is right now on her sexual journey. And again, if you want to be along for that journey, you don't want to be the fault-finding asshole with the clipboard standing beside the bed making a list of all the things that she's doing wrong or denying you. You want to be the loving, affirming partner that she needs, just as Tommy Ladd was that loving, affirming partner that I needed when I was where sounds like your girlfriend is right now. So you might want to give loving and affirming a try. Might help. Hey, Dan. I'm 29 in Florida. Um, I have a sex question for you. Um, my boyfriend and I have been playing this really fun game where, like, he'll introduce something kinky he wants to do, and I try it, and then, um, then it's my turn to pick something kinky, kinky and we try it. So it's been really fun and working out really good so far. We are finding out a lot of things we like and don't like. However, I found myself in this predicament that I don't know what to do. One of the things he would like is for me to send a video of myself um, masturbating and send it to him. Here's the problem. I've never been really good at getting off um, just rubbing my clit. That doesn't work for me. I feel like I have to be, like, rubbing up against something. Like, like I know it's, it might sound weird, but, like, I uh, I get off more, like, humping, you know? Like, if I'm humping something, usually it'll be, like, my pillow or my hand. Like, that, for some reason, is how I get off if I'm masturbating. I can't just, like, rub my clit in a sexy way to get off. So what should I do? Because I know that's not probably sexy to look at me humping something. Like, like I think that was really throwing off. So should I 
just rub my clit and pretend that's how I'm getting off and send the sexy video that way? Or should I try something more genuine? Is there some kind of toy or method you could recommend to me to make it look sexier? I don't know. Please help. The clock is ticking. The brilliant Emily Nagoski, author of Come As You Are, a book I recommend that all women and men read, has a terrific post up at Medium a couple of years back, what 60 years of research says about women's masturbation, and it breaks it down by technique. And the most common masturbatory technique for women, of course, is stimulating the clitoral vulva area with the hand while lying on her back or on her stomach. And the next most common, pressing and thrusting your clitoral vulva area against a soft object. Just 4%, but still a significant, statistically significant chunk of the population of women out there masturbate the way you masturbate. There are even some men who masturbate the way you masturbate. And the way you masturbate is perfectly legitimate. And what wouldn't be hot about a video of you masturbating the way you masturbate? Your boyfriend didn't say, please send me a video of you masturbating in the most common style. I want you using whatever technique the vast majority of women out there use. No, he's asked you for a video of you masturbating. So send him that video if, if you are comfortable sharing that video with him. If you trust him with that video, send it to him. And I bet he'll enjoy it because he wants to see you masturbate. And I bet his focus is going to be your face, not your vulva, not your clitoris, not your vaginal canal. If he wants to see those gynecological shots, those are all over the internet. He doesn't need to turn to you for that. What he wants to see is you masturbating. Share that with him. And if he tells you you masturbated wrong, tell him to give me a call. Hi, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old woman. Um, I've been with a guy for a little over a year now. And about a month ago, I snooped. Whoop, whoop. Um, not very hard. I just opened one drawer. <laughs> <laughs> and discovered that he spends a lot of time and money going to legal brothels, uh, which has been a habit of his for quite a while and has been throughout our relationship. It It's causing me sort of like, well, a lot of pain and I'm having a hard time knowing how to cope with it for many reasons while I'm trying to be compassionate. I mean, for one, like it's we have complicated schedules and it's hard enough for us to see each other. And so it's already kind of feeling neglected and then to find out that one of the reasons why he doesn't come see me is because he's going on, you know, the sex trip, getting his rocks off. And that feels sort of shitty. And also, like, I, I was trying to have discussions with him about monogamy and our boundaries and was giving him a lot of opportunity to tell me about this. And he chose not to. And um, I mean, in essence, he was just really lying to me about all of this. And so that that's really shitty, too. And I feel pretty squeamish about the fact that, like, forever, no matter, you know, he's going to age and he can go and, like, have his fantasies enacted by young women who are 10 years under, younger than me. And so it also, like, I guess it makes me feel sort of, like, hideous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I'm really not hideous, but it makes me feel that way. And I, I know he sounds like a pretty terrible person, given this description. But you know, I've been trying to find a lot of compassion for him, and like, I, I, I think he's just a really complicated person and has a very hard time with intimacy and opening up to people. And this is all kind of new to him. Um, and so, like, I understand why he's chosen a place like that or what like the, the comforts that 
brothel has given him. But what I am very confused about is where do my boundaries lie? And I'm trying to understand his perspective. But meanwhile, I, I like, can I ask him to stop going? I just feel really confused about my boundaries. You have an absolute right to tell him that dating you means he cannot continue to patronize this particular brothel or prioritize visiting this brothel over spending time with you. You have a right to know that he has other sexual partners and he has other sexual partners. That puts you at higher risk of contracting a sexually transmitted infection from him. And that would be true whether he's having sex with women who weren't doing sex work professionally. You have a right to know. And he didn't tell you. And you can empathize with him and you can take his side in this argument by saying he has a fear of intimacy and he's not used to this and relationships are new and he doesn't know how to disclose and blah, blah, blah. Or you can stand up for yourself and tell him, this stops now if you want to continue to see me. You cannot continue to patronize this brothel and see me. What I want, if this is what you want, is a monogamous relationship. And that is what you allowed me to assume that I had. For the last year while you were slipping out and going to a brothel and not just doing that behind your back, but again, prioritizing that. You both have these complicated schedules. You actually don't get to spend that much time together. And he wasn't making time for you, but he was making time to visit this brothel. He was taking time that he could have spent with you and spending it instead there. Now, there are a lot of guys who go to sex workers because they have an easier time being honest with a sex worker than honest with someone who might reject them. Often, it comes out after a guy gets caught going to see sex workers, straight or gay, that he was going there to do whatever it was that he wanted to do, that he was afraid of disclosing to his partner for fear of rejection. Sex work is not going to reject him. If he wanted to see a dominatrix, if he wanted, he was in defeat, if he wanted to be peed on, telling those things to someone that you're dating can be really scary because odds are relatively good that that person is not going to share your kink and might react negatively to it. Or you may have disclosed these things in the past and gotten such a negative reaction from the person that you told that you resolve never to tell anybody ever again except a sex worker. So there may be reasons he's going there. But whatever his reasons are, they don't justify the deceit. They don't justify the risks that he imposed on you without your knowledge or consent. And you've got to stop taking his side in this argument. You've got to stop empathizing with this person who was doing something dishonest, deceitful, dangerous potentially to you. So get mad. That doesn't mean you have to end the relationship. That doesn't mean that you can't forgive him and move on from here. That doesn't mean that you aren't right about the reasons he might have been doing this. But at the very least, you have to go in there angry and demand some answers and some honesty and change if you're going to stay together. And maybe staying together means there will be some accommodation. Maybe this is an important part of his sexual expression. Maybe there is something that he indulges with sex workers that you're not interested in indulging him in and you don't want him to be denied for the rest of his life. So there might be an accommodation where once a year or twice a year he could visit this particular brothel and do those particular things, whatever they might be. But all of this has to be on the up and up. He has to be honest with you and he has to have your informed consent going forward about whatever risks he's assuming and then assuming for you too with his extracurricular sexual activities. So caller, step one, get mad. Step two, get mad at him. Yell at him, peel the bark off him. And step three, assess whether you can continue to date this person. 
And that depends on whether he can, from this point on, be honest with you. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling in response to a woman on last episode who wasn't sure why a guy she was talking to online mentioned that he saw her on a date with another woman. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, he saw her at a concert. And for me, music is really important. And I would love to know if someone had attended the same concert as me. So I would, if I was chatting with someone, I would probably bring it up. And he might come from a polyamorous or non-monogamous, non-monogamous background as a polyamorous woman. To me, mentioning that you were on a date with another person just wouldn't be a big deal. It actually might be kind of funny. And I'd want to know the details of the date or what it was like and talk about my own dating experiences. Occam's razor, the guy's probably just inconsiderate or maybe even trying to make her jealous, but he could potentially be be from a non-monogamous background. Hi, 22-year-old Sugar Baby here. I'm calling a response to the episode about sugar babies and sugar daddies. What that spokesperson had to say from Seeking.com is absolute bullshit. She's just saying that because of SESTA and all this other shit. She just doesn't want to admit that Seeking.com is for sex workers. I'm a sugar baby, but I also identify as a sex worker. There are a lot of clients that I might not have sex with, but I'm still a sex worker. We work in the sex industry. A lot of clients will punish you for not having sex with them. Like most of these guys are looking for a cheap sex worker. And advice that I would give to anyone going onto this website is don't sleep with someone if they just want to pay you a, a low sum to have sex with them. If this guy was really rich, he would get a high cost escort. A lot of being a sugar baby is a fantasy, just like escorting. You have to provide a fantasy for these men in order to make them feel powerful and good about themselves. You can provide emotional support. She also made a comment about how there's no breaking up and no one gets their heart broken. That's completely not true. Um, a lot of relationships do come out of this, but it might not be a traditional escort-client relationship, but it's still sex work. And a lot of times you do have to break up and make up. And there's a lot expected from a sugar baby other than just like being beautiful company for a rich man. So basically complete bullshit made me really mad. Hi, for the young man in uh, episode 623 who is heteroflexible or bisexual and wondering if there are any women out there who are into that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, there are. There are lots of us. There are lots of us. And I would give Dan my number to give to you in a heartbeat if I thought he would do it. Get out there. Find us. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Get your Impeach the Motherfucker already gear at itmfa.org. And the 14th Annual Hump Film Festival premieres in Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, and Olympia. Next month, go to humpfilmfest.com to order your tickets now. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Low on Twitter at DaddyIWantThis. And again, go to dscc.org, click on Contribute, and throw some money the Senate's way. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk You and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.